Is this working now? Did I do it right? Yes, I did. Awesome. It's good to be here. It's fun seeing Helen again, back from our time at Georgia Tech. There's actually probably a hundred other connections that I have with this church, having grown up in the PCA, my father being a PCA pastor, and being involved in different churches in Atlanta. Um, also, if you know Bethany Oki, that's my sister. So there's probably many, many connections that we have. Um, so it's good to be here because I've kind of followed along with your church's story and, and it's uh, good to be here in person. So we're talking about the resurrection, right? We're talking about the risen Lord and Easter was only a couple weeks ago. Um, and uh, I was sitting in my house on Saturday of Easter weekend. You know, we did Good Friday. Uh, we're preparing for uh, Jesus' resurrection on Sunday and it's late afternoon. I'm sitting in my house and uh, I get a phone call from a guy who's, who's living in a house that we own and rent on the other side of town. And he said, I just want to let you know everybody's okay, uh, but a tree fell on the house. If you remember that Saturday, it was raining pretty intensely. So I drive across town from Decatur over to Smyrna, and, and I drive up. The police are there. The, the ambulance is there. Fortunately, I mean, the fire department's there. Everybody was okay. Nobody was hurt. But as I walked into the bedroom of the guy who lived on the corner, it was kind of open to the world, shall we say. Maybe Helen could help me rephrase it as like floor-to-ceiling view of the outside. (laughs) Connect with nature, you know, from your bed. The whole wall was gone. The roof was destroyed. My neighbor's car, who he'd waited a year and a half for his new Jeep, had it for a week and a half. The tree fell on it. The side of my neighbor's house, which was newly... Uh, you know, fixed up, restored, was, was crushed. And, um, and so I'm standing there in the rain for hours figuring out, like, what do I do with this? I never had this happen before. I wasn't sure, you know, who to call, talk, trying to get in touch with insurance. Um, and so fast forward to, um, to the next day on Easter. You know, on Easter you say Christ is risen. He's risen indeed, right? And I was saying that, but when I would say it, I would think Christ is risen, but the tree has fallen. Christ is risen, but the tree has fallen. And uh, it kind of put me in this weird state of processing the resurrection in that we live in a world in which Christ is risen, but bad stuff happens like trees fall on your house on Easter weekend and you don't know what to do. And, and in the scale of bad things to happen, trees falling on your house when you have insurance is not really that bad, right? I now know they'll come and they'll fix it up and all that stuff. But there's much other... Uh, more difficult things that we deal with all the time in our world when we look around. So we live in this world in which Christ is risen, but I just found out that my friend is diagnosed with cancer. Christ is risen, but I look around in the world and it seems like injustice is winning. Christ is risen, but there's brokenness in my family and in the people in my family. Christ is risen, but there's violence in our communities. Christ is risen, and You know, when I have time to myself, I realize there's unbelief in my heart as well. So we find ourselves in this weird position, living in a world ruled over by the risen Lord, but where the world doesn't look the way that it should. And it can leave us in a position where we begin to question the efficacy of that resurrection, the efficacy of God's plan in the world and God's restoration project in it. You know, because we believe that The resurrection matters, right? We believe that there's a power in the resurrection, 
but we're in this moment where we're not seeing it lived out in the world around us. Well, this is actually where the disciples find themselves 40 days after the resurrection. And that's where we're going to look at this morning. What I hope is that we find a sense of confidence and hope in God's restoration project, that it's happening, it's moving forward, and it will succeed if we have eyes to see it. So let's look at Acts chapter 1. We're going to look at, I'll read verse 6 through 11. We're mostly going to focus on 6 through 8. Acts 1. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and in the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, whom was taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us and enlighten our eyes to understand what you're saying in the scripture, and most of all, give us hope in you and in your work in the world. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So here are the disciples 40 days after the resurrection, and they're back on the Mount of Olives. We know that from verse 12. It talks about they leave from the Mount of Olives. This was their regular gathering place with Jesus. They loved to be here, but it probably also carried a new weight to it. It was on the Mount of Olives where they were supposed to be praying overnight to prepare for what was to come, but they they fell asleep. It was on the Mount of Olives that a combination of you know, the, the religious establishment and the government came with the mob to take Jesus and to bring him away to crucify him. It was on the Mount of Olives just 40 days earlier that they had all fled and run away, where Peter had cut off the ear and Jesus stuck it back on. Surely this place was fill, filled with some kind of new meaning now that they are on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection. And if you think about it, for the disciples not a lot had changed in their daily life. Now, they had seen the risen Jesus. They've eaten with him. He spent 40 days explaining the scriptures to them. But they still were a small band of people on the outside of society, both the Roman society and the Jewish society. And now they didn't even have Jesus doing these miracles and preaching to these huge crowds. They're probably still fearing for their lives, that they might be caught up in the same persecution that took Jesus. So here they are in this place with deep meaning. Not a whole lot has changed since Jesus rose from the dead, and they ask him this question. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So what is this question that they're asking Jesus? So in the minds of every Jewish boy and girl, was this idea of restoration. You can see it in Isaiah 11, for example, is a great example of this, which says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And skipping down, it says, And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips 
he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall lay down with the lamb, and the leopard shall dwell with the young goat. Yes, come Lord Jesus, make that happen. Bring justice and righteousness and holiness and make the world the way it's supposed to be. And every young boy and girl in, in the time of Jesus would have longed for this day to come and waited for this restoration to come. And we feel that in our hearts too when we look around at the brokenness of the world. And they probably had a picture in their mind of how this was supposed to happen. And that picture was of a man named Judas. Not the Judas who betrayed Jesus, but the man that that Judas might have been named after. You see, a couple hundred years before Jesus came, uh, there was, the Romans weren't the worst ones to rule over Israel. It was actually Antiochus Epiphanes, who was kind of along the line of Alexander the Great, who had conquered the area, and he was the king of Syria. He was ruling Israel in the second century B.C. And he hated the Jewish faith. He actually outlawed circumcision and keeping of the Sabbath. If you tried to do it, he would put you to death. He came to Jerusalem. He killed the inhabitants. He took a pig. He sacrificed it on the altar in the temple of God to profane it so they would not use it anymore. Then he set up his own altars to his pagan gods and said, come, sacrifice to it. I mean, he was the worst enemy of the Jewish people, uh, perhaps through history. Well, there was a priest about 15 miles from Jerusalem who had had enough. And one day, his name was Matthias, and one day one of these Jewish men came to sacrifice on the king's pagan altar. And Matthias comes up behind him and just kills him. And runs to the hills with his five sons. And they begin this guerrilla warfare against the Syrian army for years. When Matthias dies, his son, his third son, Judas, or Judah, Maccabee, took over this guerrilla warfare. And it was amazing. He was just kind of this genius strategist and, and kind of a forerunner of guerrilla warfare. So he'd come up against these, these troops ten times the number of people, way better equipped, and he somehow would figure out how to outsmart them and defeat them. And he took on this, this kind of aura about him. He was able to actually drive out the Syrians from Jerusalem, clean out the temple, rededicate it to the Lord, restart the sacrifices, and restore the nation to its place. And when he died, here's what they said of him. How the Mighty One has fallen, the Savior of Israel. And they gave him, it's not actually his last name, Maccabee, they gave it to him as a kind of a, a nickname, which... It's pretty sure it's from Aramaic, which would mean the hammer. Judas the hammer. He was the hammer, the savior who came and destroyed the evil outsider and restored Israel uh, to its place. So, here you got these disciples. They're on the Mount of Olives. They're with Jesus. And they say, is now the time when you're going to restore the, the kingdom to Israel? What are they saying? Is it hammer time? <laughs> Are you bringing the hammer now? Because the Romans, they're occupying, and we haven't really changed our place much, and pretty much life is the same as it was before, except, you know, you're risen, and you're explaining the Bible to us now, which is awesome, but, and you can walk through walls, which is great, but, you know, is this, is this time when you're going to bring the hammer 
On the other, bring down the hammer on the Gentile and the pagan who's in our land. And you know, when we, we think about it, a little hammer time sounds kind of good sometimes, right? You know, we look at the evil in the world like, bring the hammer, God. And we see how the world is not the way it should, should be, and we want God to bring the hammer down on people's heads. It's almost like that uh, SNL character that, uh, I think it was Keenan who did this, this was a couple decades ago. There was some kind of financial crisis, and he came on Weekend Edition to explain the economic situation. And basically all he would say was just, fix it. Here's my solution to the economic problem, government. Fix it. Fix it. And we can feel that way sometimes. God, just fix it. Fix it. But Jesus' answer to them is this. It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. What a disappointing response. Sorry, you don't get to know the times and how it's going to play out. But I think there's something more there. It's more than just the timing. It's the how and the what of God's restoration project that he's questioning. Because Jesus' plan is not to crush the Gentiles. Jesus' plan is to include the Gentiles. He's not transforming the world with a hammer. He's fashioning a world out of transformed people. His restoration project doesn't look like ours. And he wants to involve us in it, not as warriors, but as witnesses. And so he says to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that God is doing. And he says to them this in verse 8, But you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and on all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You will receive power. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. There's so much here that I think really speaks to what God's restoration project is about. We're going to look at it in reverse order because I think it, it gives more meaning there. We're going to start with this idea of the end of the earth, which is really fascinating. Where is the end of the earth? They're in Jerusalem. Most people thought Jerusalem was the end of the earth, Right? Is it Rome? Is it Spain? Is it where, where is the end of the earth? So one way to understand this is to think where Luke is coming from as he's writing. Luke uh, loved the prophet Isaiah. And you could tell reading Luke that he spent a lot of time reading the prophet Isaiah. He quotes or alludes to him like 30 times in Acts. And so Isaiah can help us to understand what, what is mean by the, meant by the end of the earth here. There's actually eight references to end of the earth in Isaiah. Now I'm going to get a little technical here for a minute, but hopefully it'll pay off, so stick with me. There's eight references to end of the earth in Isaiah, and in the Greek translation of Isaiah, which is what Luke would have been reading, because he was a Greek, there's actually three different ways in the Greek that they say that same phrase that's translated into the earth. With me so far? Because they can use different words to say the same idea. The first way, kind of at the beginning of the book of Isaiah, refers to God going to the end of the earth to judge the Gentiles and the pagans who are against him. It's hammer time, right? He's going to come with a hammer and he's going to judge these Gentile kings that are bringing injustice and unrighteousness into the world. That's meaning number one of how end of the earth is used. 
Meaning number two is that a flag is going to be raised and there's going to call go out and the Jewish people of God who've been scattered to the end of the earth will then be brought back magnetically through God's grace back to Jerusalem. So God's people will be changed and purified and restored and brought back in. So first meaning, hammer the Gentiles. Second meaning, purify and restore and bring back God's people. But there's a third meaning here that um, Isaiah talks about. This is that those same Gentile kings, those outsiders, those who are the furthest away, you would never expect to see them in church. You would never expect them to care about Jesus. You would never expect them to respond to the good news of God. They will be brought in. They will be changed. And they won't just come in like servants of God's people, watching their sheep and nursemaids to their children, as it talks about in the other ideas. They will actually become priests of the Lord. Which one do you think is the Greek phrase that Luke uses when he says, you'll be my witnesses to the end of the earth? It's the last one. It's the last one. That means that in in Luke's mind when he's writing this is that we're not just going out as witnesses to tell people about how God wants to judge them. We're not just going out to try to purify the Christians, to make them be better Christians and to come back in. We're actually going out to the people who think, because of what I've done, because of what's been done to me, because of the family I was born in, because of my history, because of my life, because of my culture, because of my ethnicity, because of whatever, I have no right to come in to be a part of God's family. And we get to go to them and say, no, come in. This is God's restoration project and you get to be a part of it. As the great um, 1990s and early 2000s philosophers, the Backstreet Boys say, (laughs) I don't care who you are, where you're from, what you did, you can be a part of God's restoration project. You can come in. And this is what God's been doing from the beginning. Think about a Genesis 1. He, he makes the world, it's good. He makes the garden, it's good. He makes the people and they're good. And he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. He's not saying, well, he is saying, go have kids. There's only two of you. We need more people. Go have kids. But that's not even the main thing he's saying. What he's saying is take the goodness that I've made in this garden and spread it to the ends of the earth, to every corner of the earth. Reflects this goodness that I've put in you in my image and put in the world in the goodness I created. And we know this because in Genesis 6, when judgment comes in Noah's day, what was the main thing they did? was that they spread evil to the four corners of the earth. They did the exact opposite that God had said. We also know this because Genesis 12, God comes to a Middle Eastern man named Abram who's living in a pagan society where they worship multiple gods and, and appears to him and says, I'm the one true God. And he says to Abram, to go to this land I'll show you. I'll give you people. I'll give you blessing. I'll make you a nation. And he says this, and I will bless you And through you, I will bless all the families of the earth. I will bless you, but through you, all the families of the earth 
will be blessed. This is God's restoration project to the end of the earth. The blessings of God, the goodness of the garden going out to every corner, to everyone having the opportunity, whatever their backstory is. So here we are to be God's witnesses. What are we witnesses to? Yes, we're witnesses of the resurrection, right? He was dead, and now he's alive. And resurrection means that Jesus, who was crucified, now lives. He took the most powerful blow from the most powerful force on earth at his time, and he's still alive, and he overcame it. And that means that this message he has of forgiveness of sins, it's actually true, and that God's restoration project is actually in effect, even if we don't see it. And that we can be witnesses to that, that God is on the move. And we can do it through our words, but even more so, we can do it through our lives. When we live out the values of this kingdom that God has, we are witnesses. When you let someone know they're not too far away from God to be included in, we are witnesses. When you go to your work and you do a really good job at your job because of your relationship with God, you are witnesses. When you relate to your neighbor in a loving way, you are witnesses. You see, God is at work doing this project and he wants us to be involved as his witnesses. This leads us kind of to this last challenging idea. Why us? Who are we to do this work of witnesses? I'm not going to think, the first question I have is, the first thing I think of is what I don't have to actually accomplish this. I mean, think about these disciples here. What do they actually have going for them? A bunch of fishermen, redneck Galileans, no power, no political power, no societal power. I mean, they got three years of training, but that's not even a full college degree. And we can say, well, I, okay, I want to be a part of this restoration mission, God of yours, but I, really, I don't really have enough money. And I, I don't really, there's really not enough people here to do this. And I don't really have enough training. And I'm not really have enough power. I'm not in the right position for that. I'm probably not mature enough to do this. I don't know. The list, you can fill in the blanks. We can go on all the, all the reasons we have, that, what we don't have. And yet into this, to his disciples, who were followers of a murdered rabbi, outcast in their own religion, he says, you will be my witnesses. So it doesn't matter what you don't have. There's also the, the who I am situation as well, or who I am not. Who am I with my personal struggles to actually be a witness in the world? Who am I with my family challenges to actually be a witness in the world? Who am I with my past to actually be a witness in the world? I think the disciples expected Jesus to actually do the work and they were just going to kind of come along with him. I mean, he shows up, he's walking through walls, he's making fish appear, you know, all kinds of stuff, like, you know, the things that Jesus does. And they're probably expecting when they ask the question, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel, is, all right, we're going to follow you, you go do the stuff, and we're just going to follow behind. Right? 
or at least we're going to do it together. But what does Jesus do? It's not for you to know. You're going to be my witnesses. Boop. (laughs) Floats up into heaven. Come on, Jesus. What are you doing? But he gives them the one thing he thinks that they need. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He says, I know that I'm here with you in the risen, uh, resurrected body, and I know that I'm your pastor now. I'm like teaching you the scripture and showing how the Old Testament speaks about me every day, and you have that. And I can do miracles and raise the dead and all those things, but that's not what you need. I want you to wait here for another 10 days and don't do anything until the Holy Spirit comes. And when the Holy Spirit comes and you have power, you will be my witnesses. That is the story of the book of Acts. That is the story of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and these timid, frightful men become bold witnesses to the gospel and thousands come. And when the religious industrial complex tries to come down on them and drag them in and question them, they're like, Who are these people that are speaking so boldly as witnesses to Jesus? And then when when the Roman military complex tries to stop them, the gospel continues to go out. Paul's witnessing in front of kings and rulers and governors. When there's theological division in the group, doesn't stop them. The Holy Spirit helps him to work it out, and they're his witnesses Not even imprisonments and beatings and shipwrecks, getting bitten by poisonous snakes. It's a great story. Uh, None of that can stop them. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. And these country folk from the backwoods of Galilee turn the Roman world upside down so that in three centuries, even the Roman emperor is bowing his knee to Jesus. It's not not for us to know when exactly, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And here we are this morning in East Atlanta Village, literally the end of the earth from the Mount of Olives, worshiping Jesus as most of us probably Gentile people who grew up far away from the faith that God has called us in. We're a testament to the success of God's restoration project. And it's happening all over the world. In Africa, in the early 1900s, there were 7 million African believers. Today, there's 700 million. In China, you know, there's probably more Christ followers in China than in America. And all of them, most of them are willing to suffer and be imprisoned and die for their faith. It's happening in Iran, where mission agencies from Costa Rica and Latin America are sending missionaries to Iran, and it's the fastest growing church planning network in the world. It's happening in Europe, where former colonies are sending missionaries to reach their former colonizers. And in Europe, the largest church before the war in Ukraine was in Ukraine, in Kyiv, planted and led by a Nigerian pastor 
the mayor of Kiev was a member. God is doing his restoration project. Yes, trees are still falling. Yes, the world is not the way we, we want it to be, but it's still in process. It's still happening. He's restoring all things. And he says, I want you to be involved in that. You see, we don't need a hammer. We need the Holy Spirit. And maybe you're sitting there and thinking, this all sounds good, but is this really happening? I think we need to take a moment and say, Holy Spirit, would you open my eyes to see how you're working in my neighborhood, in my community, the things that you're doing in the world? Maybe you're thinking, okay, God's working, but I don't know how I can be involved. Holy Spirit, will you show me the place you want to use exactly who you made me to be, including all the horrible stuff that happened to me for your kingdom and to be a witness. Or maybe you're like, I want to be involved, but I just don't know what to say or what to do. Holy Spirit, would you give me the words to say at this moment, which is what I pray before I got up here? Holy Spirit, would you... Help me to know how to work through this situation here. Holy Spirit, would you help me know how to make this decision that's challenging? Because Jesus thought it was better for you to have the Holy Spirit for him to be sitting on the front row leading the meeting. We don't need a hammer, we need a Holy Spirit because that's what God's given us to accomplish his mission So what if we did rely on the Holy Spirit? What if we did give up our questions of, is it now? Are you going to do it now? And we said, what are you going to do through me, through your power? I think, I think we'll see things that will be radical in the eyes of the world. Let me tell you one quick story to end. I was speaking to this pastor in the Czech Republic um, named Milan uh, a few months ago. And he had re- his church had relationships with churches in Ukraine before the war. So when the war started, all of these women and children from these churches fled to the Czech Republic as refugees. And they immediately went into refugee work because they already knew the church. They already knew the people in it. And so he, he told me about the first time he came to do a service for them, newly, uh, newly fleeing refugees in another country. Their men are back in Ukraine protecting their cities, probably likely being shot at. Uh, And here they are trying to, they don't have anything, they don't have a job, they don't have a connection, they don't know how the life is going to work out. And so he's going to do this service, he's thinking, I probably need to read a psalm to them of encouragement, of lament. But as he's going, the Holy Spirit is saying to him, no, I want you to do something else. He's like, are you sure? He's like, yes, I want you to do something else. So he gets in front of these, these women, refugees, and he reads them Matthew 28. Go into the world and make disciples. And he reads to them Acts 1.8. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So these women started printing flyers with the gospel on it and taking them to the Red Cross refugee lines and passing them out and having conversations with their fellow refugees. Next thing you know, there's many of them gathering together to worship the Lord on Sunday. 
that happens so much that they have to kind of establish some kind of leadership because a church is forming in the refugee community led by refugees for refugees. And now they're even talking about how to expand into more churches because God is working. How easy would it have been for them to say, who am I? Where I've been? What's happened to me? To be a witness to Jesus now? Yeah, God delights in using the weak things of the world uh, to shame the wise. And he does that time and time again. And I feel like that's what he wants to do with us as well today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that, that you are a God who uses us and wants to use us. That even when we feel unusable or we feel like we don't have what it takes, you say you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Help us, Lord, to do that. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.